the FT. Entrepreneurs challenge the rules and change the game. We should know. At Mishkondorea, we've worked closely with all kinds of entrepreneurs, developing innovative tools to help protect and accelerate their plans. Mishkondorea, it's business, but it's personal. Welcome to the latest podcast in the Financial Times' Deals and Dealmakers series. I'm Anusha Sakui, the FT's Mergers and Acquisitions Correspondent. As economies in the developed world have stagnated in the wake of the financial crisis, M&A has been dominated by talk of companies looking to emerge in markets in the search for growth. China, Africa, Latin America and India are all regions large Western corporates are looking to tap. Royal Dutch Shell went into a bidding war earlier this year over the East African oil assets of Cove, for example, but lost out to Thai state oil group PTT. The traffic is not one way. We have also seen the growth of bids out of the emerging markets into the developed nations. Carlos Slim, the Mexican telecoms tycoon, bought large stakes in two European telecom operators this year. With the backdrop of ongoing market uncertainty, however, deal-making across borders is not easy. To discuss the issues with me are two top M&A advisors, Hernan Christerna, Head of M&A for Europe, the Middle East and Africa at JP Morgan, and Edward Braham, Global Head of Corporate at Freshfields. Thank you to both of you for joining me. In what way are companies tapping emerging markets? What are the kinds of deals you are seeing at the moment, Hanan? So what I'd say is that the activity that we observed in developing markets is very much driven by value considerations and the fact that, you know, we observed that if you look at the FTSE 100, if you look at the S&P 500, those indices are still trading a good 20% below the 07 highs. So here's what's happening. In terms of inbound activity, what I have noticed over the last few months is a contrarian view where companies in developed markets are questioning themselves, do I really have to pay a double-digit multiple to acquire a company in an emerging market where I can, for a single-digit multiple, acquire a world-class company in a mature market? And therefore, what we've seen, if you look, for example, at the deal volumes into Asia, we have seen that the inbound volumes have essentially halved since 2007, from a region of around 80 billion down to 40 billion. And that's into developed nations? That's inbound into into Asia, yeah, into, okay, emerging, Asia yeah. into emerging a- Asia. Because of that same reason, what we've seen is that the outbound activity of companies you know, in Asia coming into mature markets has essentially just about doubled because they see that value opportunity. They see an arbitrage opportunity which, because a company happens to sit in Europe and is affected by the macro discount of Europe, there is an arbitrage opportunity because some of those companies only have, might have a, only a portion of their assets in Europe. And furthermore, for these Asian companies, this kind of environment, they can be more competitive because there's a lack of confidence in the companies in the developed markets, so they can be more effective in trying to actually you know, win acquisition processes. So I think that overall, what we're observing is inbound activity has pretty much halved, but outbound activity, Asian companies operating in mature markets in North America, in Europe, that has essentially doubled. Ed, can I bring you in and ask you if there are any particular industries and any particular countries that are linking together where you're seeing any trends? It's interesting. I think it's actually quite diverse what people are looking at, and it does vary over time. So if you just pick some examples, clearly the oil and gas sector and the uh, mining and minerals has been active for quite a while, particularly with the Chinese uh, looking for assets there. But drinks, telecoms, you know, if you look at Mexico, we've had two big drinks deals in recent years. We've um, got the current ABM Bev Modelo deal. Uh, We had Heineken Fempser. 
there's telecoms going on in many, many countries over the world. If you just look at Brazil, I was looking through the things we've been doing in Brazil in the last year or so. Oil and gas deals, insurance, energy, and currently Abertus's toll road deal. It's a very diverse mix. One of the big themes has been, as you were talking about, Hernan, the rise of Asian bidders into Western countries. Mm. What is driving that outbound activity from China and Japan? So two different cases. I think that in the case of China, I would characterize as an industry policy driven. Uh, as Ed just mentioned, you know, we've seen them, you know, hugely active across the the natural resource space, the Sinox right now with Nexen, Sinopec with Adax, Chalco with Rio Tinto, you know, a couple of years ago. So so that has been their sphere of influence, supported by the value argument that I described earlier. And my expectation is that it, that trend will extend, you know, into other sectors. I think that China Inc. is interested to acquire top class management, brands, technology. We've seen in the past Geely going after Volvo. We have seen Lenovo doing the IBM PC business. More recently, Shanghai Bright coming to the UK for Weedabix. I think that that industrial policy has been very clearly driven around natural resources. I think we're going to see extending into other sectors. I think the case of Japan is completely different. I think Japan, uh, they've just become hugely frustrated of having an economy that is just not growing. Hugely frustrated of having a very strong currency, which is not good for you know many other things other than to leverage in acquisitions. So what we've seen is that volumes in Japan that had been very much stagnant around the 30 billion mark historically, they've really exploded. You know, this year we're expecting in excess of 80 billion activity coming out of Japan across sectors. I mean, we we've seen Takeda very active in the pharma sector in the Nikomet last year, Daiichi with uh, Marubeni this year. So I think that we're just going to continue seeing Japan across every sector very very active. But I think that as we've also seen. China increase. China has essentially doubled transaction volume since 07. I think we're going to see both of those regions leading, continue to lead in a lot of transaction activity, but for very different reasons. One of the fascinating issues is how China Inc., as you put it, meets the challenges uh, it faces trying to buy assets uh, in Western countries. Edward, how do they overcome opposition to um, their entrance into some of these markets? Yes, as Helen was saying, the Chinese master plan has changed. The five-year plan, uh, which we're currently working under, is focusing on a broader range of things, including brands, technology, growing market share, and so on. And that is forcing them to look into the West because that's where those assets are. I think they have two big categories of issue that they've got to address. One is external and the other is internal. Externally, there are concerns about foreign investment by the Chinese when it's big assets. The Brazilians are very concerned about this. The Australians have been looking at it for years. It's a hot topic on the CNOC-Nexon deal. If you go to the tech sector, much of the tech they'd really love to buy is in the US. And through CFIUS, the US government is being extremely vigilant on what they are happy for them to buy. And there are a great many tech deals which have had to be abandoned along the way because you can't get CFIUS approval. I think Sinuk and Nexon is actually quite an interesting case study, which is still playing out. So price, they pay a high price. That virtually rules out any counterbidder. So the issues are focused squarely on foreign investment. They put in a new Canadian headquarters, a Toronto listing, as part of a charm offensive to get the Canadians to say yes. And last week, we had a new bilateral investment treaty between Canada and China, and that seems to have swung the newspapers uh, so that the newspapers are now no longer hostile to the government approving this. 
And I think all of that is an example of how the Chinese are determined to buy. They're a very sophisticated nation and they're going about sorting out the external problems. If you look internally, their core issue is around their approvals process. They take time. So, as Hernan will tell you, if you want to get the Chinese there at the end of an auction process, you start years before to educate them, to let them start talking to the government to get that approvals process warmed up. But they only give those approvals after the deal is signed, except in very, very narrow circumstances. And sellers worry about that because it looks like a free material adverse change condition, which means the Chinese do tend to have to pay a little bit more in order to win in an auction because most sellers will take that into account. What I'd add to what, you know, just absolutely consistent with what Ed said is that I think for that same reason, we typically see a lot of Chinese activity on preemptive one-on-one dialogues and a lot of times they just purely shy away from auctions or where they're in auctions, they're just less competitive for the reasons that it says. I think that China typically does try to position themselves into one-on-one preemptive dialogues because I think that they realise that that is where they have the greatest starts of success. I want to ask one last question, which I'd like each of you to pick an economy uh, or country which you think is going to be the most interesting to track in terms of this trend. Hanan? Well, I think that the foreseeable future, for the reasons Ed and I have been discussing, we'll continue to see China being a driver of activity. I think that the other countries that I would point out to I think in Asia, Korea, they have world-class companies that have been very inwardly focused. I think Brazil, to me, is a sleeping giant. They also have world-class companies, and they're just not been active sufficiently outside of uh, Brazil. And I'll even give the benefit of the doubt to India. I think that India has been very episodic in their activity, but I would just expect India to be more active going forward. Edward? Uh, all I'd add to that is Japan. Mm-hmm. We're seeing a growing amount of Japanese outbound work, and you know it's a big, rich economy. And they're quite capable of doing some very sophisticated big deals, as they've shown with things like Takeda Nikomed. With that, I have to say, unfortunately, it is all we have time for. Edward and Hernan, thank you both for joining me today. Remember, you can access the full Deals and Dealmakers report at ft.com forward slash dealmakers. Thank you for listening and goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.